who brought a very limp duck into a veterinarian's office, and as she lay her pet on the table, the vet pulled out his stethoscope, and he listened to the bird's chest. And after a moment or two, the vet shook his head sadly and said, I am sorry, your duck has passed away. The distressed owner wailed, are you sure? How can you be so sure? I mean, you haven't done any testing on him or anything. All you've done is listen, and, and he might be just in a coma or in some stupor state. So the vet rolled his eyes, he turned around, left the room, and returned a few moments later with a black Labrador retriever. As the duck's owner looked on in amazement, the dog stood on its hind legs, put its paws up on the table, began to sniff the duck from head to, to uh, foot, and uh, looked over at the vet and shook his head with a sad... Before the owner could even say anything, a cat jumps up on the table, sniffs delicately at the bird. The cat sat back on its haunches, shook its head, meowed softly, strolled out of the room. The vet looked at the woman and said, I am sorry, but as I said, this is most definitely, 100%, certifiably a dead duck. The vet then turned to his computer terminal, hit a few keys, produced an invoice, which he handed to the woman, the duck's owner, still in shock, took the bill and said, $550 to tell me that my duck is dead? The vet shrugged for a moment and said, look, if you'd have taken my word for it, the bill would have been 150 bucks. But with the lab report and the CAT scan, it comes to $550. And those are the kind of stories that help get me through the week. On a, uh, so uh, you just never know how they're going to go over. And uh, on a much more serious note, we're in the midst of a series that I've entitled, A Physician Examines the Life of Jesus. And Dr. Luke introduces his gospel as being an autopsy or an eyewitness account of the words and deeds of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, much of uh, what we've learned to date has had uh, the unique perspective of a physician's view of life. And today's passage focuses our attention on the human heart. You know, this past week I heard or I was listening to a news report and they had isolated some type of mutant gene that apparently was found in each person who they detected had heart disease. You know, and when you're dealing with the microscopic world, we could walk around all day long and not recognize the things that are going on within our own life. We're blind to those things. And, you know, some of us here today could have heart disease or other ailments and not have any symptoms or not even know it. It's undetected. And yet at the same time, when a series of tests are done, in this particular case, there's a series of blood work, intricate blood tests that are done to be able to isolate this gene and what we find is there's a microscopic world that we cannot see with our, with our, you know, the human eye, so to speak, without going through a battery of tests. And once those tests are ta- take place, they reveal to us things that are unknown to us up to that point. You know, people ask on a regular basis, you know, how are you? And I say, well, you know what, I- I'm doing fine as far as I know, but that's always subject to change every time I get a test result back. I think I'm doing okay, other than I'm walking a little funny. And, you know, other than that, you know, people look at me and say, man, you look great. I've never had so many people say that I've looked good in all of my life. And it's, you know, and it's kind of a mixed message there because, you know, you don't really know until the test comes back, you know, whether you're as good as you think you are. And I love that from this standpoint. There is a great spiritual parallel that is true. 
you and I can walk around thinking that we're good, as many people do. I'm good, I'm not great, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad compared to other people that I know. And there needs to be an objective test or measurement that we can look at to see if we're really doing as well as we think we are. You know, and the Bible tells us, and Dr. Luke specifically uh, gives us a uh, spiritual EKG is what I thought about when I was putting this message together. You know, it helps us to see ourselves as God sees us, to examine, uh, to examine ourselves objectively when you think you're good or you think you're fine. The question really you have to ask yourself is, but is that reality? Is that truth? Or is there an objective measurement by which I can stand against the backdrop of to see whether or not that is really true of my life? In this particular passage, what Luke shares with us is a heart exam that, was, that he learned from Jesus as he preached this particular message to a multitude of people who stood there that day and many of them thought that they were doing okay. And in reality, they were not. So if you turn with me to Luke chapter 8, we find this particular account, this spiritual EKG or heart exam, as Luke examines the life of Jesus, he records these words inspired by the Spirit of God, Luke 8, verse 1. And it came about soon afterwards that Jesus began going about from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. There was Mary who was called Magdalene from whom seven demons had been driven out. And Joanna the wife of Chovez, Herod's steward and Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. It says, and when a great multitude were coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable the following. He said, the sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell besides the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And the other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he had said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable might be. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those whom, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation they fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance." Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand in order that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to the light. Therefore take care how you listen, for whoever has to him shall more be given, 
And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. And his mother and his brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. You know, one of the major themes of Luke chapter 8 is how to get faith and use it in our everyday lives. This first section that we see, or this first half, uh, Jesus laid the foundation by teaching his disciples that, camp, that faith comes from receiving the word of God into an open and understanding heart. That the key that we're looking at is having an open mind or an open heart to be able to receive the truths that are heard. And the first thing that we look at in verses 1 through three is, uh, 4 as we go back to that is the intent of Jesus in using this parable. And if you'll notice, it came about soon afterwards that he began going from one city and village to another. We find the words proclaiming and preaching. There's an explanation of Jesus' ministry. Everywhere that he went, he was proclaiming and he was preaching. And the words basically mean preaching is the style or the manner, uh, while proclaiming reveals the content of his preaching. There's a certain style, you know, a preacher preaches, and the proclamation is, is the message that's preached by the, in the style in which it's delivered. But the word proclaiming has to do with evangelism or to share good news. The content of, of Jesus' preaching was the good news of the kingdom of God. That he was there to tell people about the good news. And when you stop and think about it in its essence, in, in its simplicity or purity, he came to tell men that the kingdom of God was available to the human soul through God's grace. That God was making himself accessible. That there was access to God through Jesus Christ. And, he, and he, as he proclaimed this good news, he was telling all who would hear him, as, as he'll tell us in a moment, all who will hear him, that they could be reconciled to God by grace through faith and trust in him to believe on him as the savior of the world, not only in general, but more important specifically. For an individual to believe that God loved them enough to send Jesus into the world to die for their sins, to believe that he was raised again from the dead, the essence of the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15, is that Jesus came and he died for our sins according to scripture. He was raised again from the dead, according to God's plan, the foreknowledge, a predetermined plan of God. And that by putting our faith and trust in Him, that we could become children of God to those who believe in His name. What he was saying was, I got great news for you who are alienated or who have been exiled from the very presence of God. I've got great news that you have access to God, to God again through faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And it's a wonderful message, and it's a wonderful invitation because everywhere that Jesus went, he said, you know, come to me, all you who are weary laden. Come to me who are heavy burdened. Come to me who, who are struggling with the guilt and understanding that, you know what, that you know you're not perfect, and if God's standard is perfection, then you know that you've got a problem. Some of us think that we're good, but when we're confronted with the reality that God's standard, objective standard, is perfection, are you perfect? There's none of us who ever can make that claim. No, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous. No, not one of us. And the good news that Jesus came to proclaim and to preach is that, you know what? God knows that, and he loves us anyway. And even yet, while we were sinners, running from God, doing our own thing, living our lives in a manner that's not pleasing to God. I love what one of, one of our 
our, our member said at a breakfast that he shared not too long ago, when he was confronted at the time with, with a woman who ultimately would become his wife, she asked this penetrating question, do you really believe that God is happy with the way you live your life? And what a great question that is to ask. Do you really believe that you are perfect? Do you really believe that God, who does exist, could be happy with the choices that you are making, the things that you do, the things that you think, the behavior that you exhibit? Do you really believe for a moment that a perfect God could be happy with such imperfection? What a great question. And the answer, if we're honest, is that absolutely not. What must I do to be saved? Repent. Turn from sin. Turn to God. Throw yourself upon His mercy. God, forgive me. I believe what you say. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. His death, His resurrection. And now I invite Him into my life as best as I know how to be my Lord and my Savior. Have you accepted God's invitation? That's the great news that Jesus came to proclaim and to preach. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in verses 2 and 3, we see that also some women who had been healed, not only were the 12 with him, but there are women who had been healed of evil spirits, sicknesses, Mary Magdalene, uh, we see who had seven demons that had been cast out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, you know, think about the wickedness of Herod's household, and here's a woman that's represented in this group, and Susanna, and many others, and I want you to notice there was an emphasis emphasis that was taking place on these folks and, and how different their lives were. They had returned from exile. They had been alienated from God. They were separated from God. And when were we all exiled? The moment that Adam chose to disobey God. He, they, he was cast out of the Garden of Eden, cast out of the presence of God, saying, the day that you rebelled against God, you shall surely die. Spiritual death, physical death. And all of us, through Adam, sin entered the world, and we are a product of that sinfulness. We, too, are born in the world, alienated or exiled to, from God. Now, the wonderful thing is he's saying, take a good, hard look at the people that are with me. For emphasis' sake, they too were exiled at one point. Now, look at them. Look at the 12 that he had chosen. Consider the fact that Matthew, or Levi, as we knew him before he became Matthew, was a tax gatherer, and he was a cheat, and he was a thief, and he would rip people off. And he's saying, look, look at what God can do to a human heart. Here, you know, it's like, here it is, you know, a word picture for you. Look at these people, a member of Herod's household. Herod, who sent John the Baptist to prison and was beheaded. Here's a member of his household who has returned from exile back to the very presence of God. What a wonderful thing that is. And the emphasis, don't miss it, is this. No matter how bad we are, and we're all bad, we're all rotten to the core, as I've said before, and will continue to say, we are all rotten to the core, but you know what? None of us are beyond the reach of God's open arms. None of us. And how wonderful that is to know as we look at the people that were there in this group, there was an emphasis that was there. And it was, you know, they were healed. And I love the word that that physician Luke uses on a regular basis. They had been healed. And you know what? It's by his stripes that you and I are healed today. We're told it's by the stripes of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he made, the penalty that he paid for our sins, he took upon himself. It's by those same stripes that you and I are healed, that we're made right with God to those who receive him and the invitation to come unto him and he will give you rest. 
What a wonderful thing that is to see that all these people were healed of their ailments. And their greatest ailment that they had was that they were sinners separated from God. They were physically healed in order to reinforce what Jesus had already said and will say over and over again. I have healed them physically so that you will know that they are healed spiritually. And as we look at this emphasis, they were living in a manner, notice this, they were, they were walking with Jesus, they were traveling with Jesus, and many others also were following him, and notice this, and they were contributing to their support, the support of that group, out of their private means. One of the great barometers of our spiritual life, one of the greatest tests of whether we are truly born again and have been transformed by the will of God, not our own human efforts, is that we become generous people. Generous towards God and generous towards the needs of one another. That's why in 1 John 1, 3 through 16 and 18, the Bible says that how can you say that you have the love of God living or indwelling you when you see your brother in need and you don't do anything about it? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, you know, and you call yourself a Christian, the world would say, and yet you close your eyes and you close your ears to the, to the cries of others and the needs that God presents before you. Behold is a word that as God continues to bring that need before you, he's saying, look, 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 would you look? You can do something about this. And when you do something about it, you give evidence that God's love dwells within you. And the fact that they were following Jesus and the 12 and were contributing to their needs is another testimony of a transformed life. What can we do to meet your needs? Because the message that you're proclaiming is the greatest message that anyone could ever hear. And that's exactly what we do as, as a body of believers. We, we, we support the spreading of the gospel or the proclamation that, you know what? You can be reconciled with God. You can be brought back from exile. You can be brought into a right relationship with God by His grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of what we do with the funds that you give to God is that we can then use those resources to reach others with the Word of God. That's our, whole, that's our mission statement of reaching the world with the Word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. They were an example, and there's an emphasis there. He was saying, you know, take a good hard look at what God can do in a human heart that is receptive to His message. Now, in this introduction, we have an explanation of Jesus' ministry. He was preaching and proclaiming the good news that you and I could be reconciled with God. Uh, we have an emphasis on the results. Look at what happens to a life that's touched by Jesus. And then he also goes, goes on in verse 4, and we're told that, uh, and when we read through it, it says, And when a great multitude were coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of parable. We're told that there was an exhortation that was here to the multitudes of people. You know, verse 4 tells us that, you know, there's a huge crowd or multitude that followed Jesus everywhere that he went. And, you know, and it's not hard to see why. Not only were his words comforting that, hey, you and I can know God, you and I can be restored to fellowship with God. You and I can be forgiven of all of our sins. You and I can, you know, the Bible says as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. That if we come to God and confess our sin and repent and turn to him, that he'll wipe our slate clean as if none of those sins that have ever existed. The burden will be freed up. We'll have peace with God, peace with our own selves, peace with one another. People were following him everywhere and rightfully so. But there were also people who were following him because they liked to be part of the scene. They liked to be where the action is. 
You know, and it's no different in our culture. If there's a party going on, you want to be invited, not because you even care to go, but because if you're not invited, you feel left out. And, you know, and the bottom line is we all like to be part of where there's action, part of where there's something happening. And he looked out to this multitude, and, 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 and the exhortation to the crowd, as we'll see in the parable that he teaches, he, he was saying to them, and he was warning them, you know what, not everybody here has come to be reconciled to God. Some of you heard that I raised people from the dead. Some of you heard about the withered man's hand. Some of you heard about the man who'd never walked, dropped in through the house and told him to pick up his pallet and walk. Some of you heard about the widow Nain's, you know, son. Some of you came because you're curious, not because you are seeking God. You're just curious to see what's going on. Or you were invited by someone who wanted to go, who really had a hunger for spiritual things, and you figured you might as well go with them anyway to make sure that they don't get themselves in trouble or just trying to find out what it is that they're doing and keep an eye on them. I had once a, a gal who was coming to our home, and Linda and I were going to give some counseling, and, uh, and her boyfriend, and, I, and it was funny because she said, I need to come and talk to you, and it was about her relationship with her boyfriend. I thought, well, that's fine. So Linda and I were there, and I see a car pull up to the front, and I just started to smile because guess who was with her? Her boyfriend. Because he wanted to hear what I was going to say to her so he knew firsthand what was really going on. Not because he had the same conviction of heart of sin that was going on. Not because he had the same interest in spiritual things. But because he just wanted to make sure that, you know, someone wasn't telling her something that he didn't want her to hear. So that, you know, he could respond to it. And it was a crossroads in her life. And it was interesting, and it was great because I had a chance just to share with him the same thing I would have shared with her, and it was the truth from the Word of God, and that, you know what, you're living in sin. And you need to repent. If you want to be right before God, you've got to quit this living arrangement, and that's the way it's got to be. And, uh, you know, and he didn't like to hear any of that because his life wasn't seeking God. His life wasn't, you know, how can I be right with God? He could have cared less. He just wanted to keep enjoying what he was enjoying, and it didn't make any difference what the truth was. It was fascinating because I see him on a pretty regular basis and, you know, he just kind of gives me the look. I get that look a lot. And I'm starting to recognize the look. Good to see you too. But uh, what's interesting is we go through this, you know, what Jesus was saying was, hey, he goes, you know what? There was, a, there was a great crowd that was there. And, you know, as the great physician, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that every person in that crowd had the genetic mutation of heart disease called sin. A congenital birth defect. Every person, and what's wonderful, according to the Word of God, I look out today, every one of you, including myself, has come into this world with a congenital birth defect called sin nature. And we are all strangers and alien, alienated from God. We are at enmity with God, the Bible says. We are actually God's enemies. And the reason we know that we're God's enemies is because it's our sin that put his son to death on the cross. And Jesus, as he stood looking at these multitudes of people from all over the place who were there for a variety of reasons, shared this particular parable. And in verses 5 through 8, we find the illustrations of the parable that reveal how the multitudes, including you and me today, respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice in verses 5 through 8. And he spoke by way of parable to that crowd that he was looking at. And he said, The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road. 
and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. And other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop of a hundred times as great. As he had said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In this section, Jesus uses a common scene in his day to teach a spiritual truth. You know, a parable is just that. It's a story from the physical world that's used to come alongside and aid in the understanding of a spiritual truth. Today, we would call them, and I call them, illustrations. Let me illustrate this by taking something that is common to most of us in order to have a better spiritual understanding of the message that's being spoken. And so it was probably uh, not uncommon in that day as Jesus stood before this multitude where he would say, you know what, and and the sower went out to sow seed and they would turn their attention upon a sower who was there. We're told that he went out, he lived in town, he would get his his sack and he'd put it over himself and he would go out and he would sow seed. And the seed he would sow and they would stand there and they would be looking at the scene and they would be thinking, all right, where's he going with this? Kind of where's he going with this story? And they would go out and, they would, and, and he would see them and they would be throwing seed. And they would be watching the story. And he said, you know, a sower went out and he, and he sowed seed. And he went out from where he was, which was in his home, and he went out to the field. The fields were outside of town. And there were rectangular plots of land that, that they used. And they would take a plot and, and one person would own a plot. And, they were, and in between each plot would be a roadway to pass in between so you don't walk in the, in the middle of whatever it was that was being planted. And he'd say, you know, a sower went out and he was sowing seed. And they were all looking at this word picture. They were seeing what was going on. And then he went on and he he began to explain to them what it was that was happening today. Today, I would say, you know, it would be kind of like if you went out, you know, somewhere on on a farm and you saw somebody work in the fields or whatever. Or in our yards, you would see somebody that would be out there, maybe yourselves, and you'd be taking grass seed, winter rye for the wintertime. So, you know, your grass is a little green. And they'd just be out there. you got the little whirly bird thing or whatever it is. Or, you know, just kind of give it this. I like to do this. And it was pretty interesting to see how it would grow later of really cool little things where there are some here and not some over here and not some over there. And, uh, but, you know, you take it and just kind of do that thing and you'll be going, okay, so somebody's sowing seed. What's up with that? And they would go through and he would use that and he would begin and he would say, hey, you know, some of it would fall alongside the roadside or the wayside, a hard and beaten path. As I just mentioned, in between each field was an area that, that the, the public could walk in between the fields. And it would become very hard from, from those who were walking on it, the wagons that would be going... Um, alongside there so they'd be stomped down they said you know and look and as they were watching they were seeing this they saw so oh look there's seed it's falling falling by the hard path and he said oh you know what and then the birds of the air would come because it wouldn't sink into the ground it would just be laying on top they'd come down and the birds would take it and it would be you know it's it's lunchtime it's it's a it's you know feast day it's kind of like eating at pch the little hot dog place up on chapman and all the pigeons are there you know same type of thing see those are current illustrations people can relate to that those who go to pch you know you throw a little couple little hot dog buns over there and you see like thousands of dirty pigeons flying all over your food it's it's you know it's not healthy but you know it's it's a word picture and uh, so anyway so we take that and, and he was explaining this he's saying oh okay and it was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air came and ate it up and on the other seed fell on rocky soil and as soon as it grew up it withered away because it had no roots and and or no moisture 
Now, what he's saying, a rocky soil, don't picture in your mind big old rocks and go, why would anybody throw a seed in big old rocks? Well, it wasn't rocks. It was a thin layer of dirt, and underneath that layer of dirt was limestone. It looked like it was a field that would be receptive to the seed that was thrown, but it would take roots, but the roots couldn't go any deeper than the, that rock layer that would have been there. When I was a kid back east, we played football at a place that was an inner city school, and there was obviously there was no room for you know football fields or stadiums or anything. There was no parks, and, and, it was, and when it was again, the school, it was a playground. It was an asphalt playground, and they took and they and they covered the playground with dirt, about this much dirt, maybe about four inches of dirt, just enough that your cleats, you know, could could find the asphalt. And then they would take the dirt, and then they would put oil over the top of the dirt so they didn't get dusty for all the, you know, the, for the school and for the neighborhood. And you'd be running down the field, and every now and then there was no dirt. And you'd find where the asphalt was, where the dirt was no longer. And that was always a funny thing when that happened, um, you know, especially with cleats on. Hey, what, look at that. Look, what, you just fell on your face. What are you doing? Well, there's asphalt. Yeah, whatever. And, you know, but, but, and, and I'm thinking as, I, as I'm preparing this, going, man, that was just like back in the day when, when there was a little bit of dirt, but underneath the dirt was asphalt, and there was nothing going to grow there. And he's saying, well, you know, just kind of like that. And then he looks over and says, hey, another seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it, choked it out. And so there would be thorns that were growing or weeds that would grow up with that which would grow, and it choked out, and eventually there was no produce or, or product of the seeds. And the other seed fell into the good soil, grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And then he said, these, as he said these things, he looked to the crowd and he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he yelled out loud to call their attention to, if you have ears to hear, then hear what I'm saying. It's important to understand the message. Now, I, I love the response of his disciples in verse 9 because, I mean, it kind of is reflective of, of hopefully many of us. And that's like, what is this? Okay, I'm watching, they're sowing seeds, you're telling the story. Okay, so what, what's it mean to me? What's that all about? What's up with all that? Kind of like maybe you are here and saying the same thing, like, where's this all going? And, uh, and, and, and as he looked at this, it's kind of like, you know what, well, what do you want me? And, and he's saying, you know, I want you to learn something. And those who are seeking God's truth, those who are there not just to enjoy the scene and to see what's going on, because I guarantee you this, the people that were there not to listen to the message were the ones that are looking around at the crowd. Oh, look at that. Oh, oh there's so-and-so. And they're kind of looking around. They, they didn't look at the sower. They're not listening to the message. They're looking all over the place. They're doing a whole bunch of other things. But they're not tuned in. And Jesus says, you know what? You got ears to hear. Then you know what? Then hear this. Because you need to hear this. I need to hear this. We need to hear this today. God, what is your message for me today with regards to what you're teaching that multitude? What have I come here today to learn from you? Teach me. Do you have ears to hear? Then I'll say the same to you. Then you know what? Then listen up and hear what he has to say. And that's the instruction that takes place in verses 9 and 10. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable might be. Well, Lord, what's up? What are you trying to tell us? And he said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Jesus tells his disciples of the tremendous privilege and responsibility of being given or granted by God to know the mysteries of God's kingdom. 
Everything that you and I have received, we have received it from God. To know the mysteries of God's kingdom. To those who are truly born again, I want you to take a moment with me to let this thought soak in. You and I have been entrusted by God with the mysteries of God's kingdom. You say, what mysteries? Well, how about this mystery? We know where we've come from. We know who our creator is. And we've got a whole world of people running around sending satellites and sending, you know, sending you know, little rover units to land on Mars to try to figure out the secret or the mystery of the origin of life. And God's people know we're created in the image and likeness of God our creator. You and I have been entrusted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The world is asking, why am I here? How did I get here? And you know what? And you and I know those answers. I know how I got here. I was created in the image and likeness of God. But you know what? Because of sin, I was exiled from his presence. Why am I here? Well, I am here. You are here to have fellowship with your creator. But we can't have fellowship with God who has exiled us or banished us from his presence. Then how can we be reconciled with God? We have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus come? That's the question. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. What was lost? You and I were lost. He came to seek me and you. He came to seek us out and tell us good news. That you and I can have a relationship with God and be reconciled to him. Come back and return from exile by grace through faith. Trusting in him, his death, his resurrection in your behalf, on my behalf. And to invite him into our life as our savior. Have you done that? If so, then you know one of the mysteries of God. Where do we come from? Why are we here? We are here now as God's people to bring glory to his name. We are here to glorify him in our earthly bodies. That's why I'm here. According to 1 Corinthians, we're told that I'm here to glorify God. You're here to glorify God. Okay, well, where are we going? And you know what? We know that mystery as well. That the day that you and I die, I run into so many people now through this cancer situation that it, it just breaks my heart because they don't know where they're going. They don't know from whom they've come. They don't know why they are here. And the most frightening aspect of it all is, and they don't know where they're going. And we have the wonderful entrustment by God to be able to share that answer, those answers with them because we know. And how do we know? Because God's word tells us the day that you and I who have trusted in Christ and received them as our Savior, the day that you and I die, will be absent from our body, but will be present with the Lord. And we are confident of this because God tells us so. If it were not so, Jesus said, I wouldn't have told you that. But I go and prepare a place for you that where I am, you will always be. And I will come again for you. If we do not die before he returns, we know from 1 Thessalonians 4 that we who are alive will be caught up with him and translated or, or, or changed in a twinkling of an eye. And we will be with him always. We know that one day he will come and he will establish his kingdom here on this earth for a thousand years. And we know that his, God's kingdom will be on this earth just as it is in heaven. The whole universe will be in, in, in a perfect symmetry. As God's will is done today in heaven, it will be done on earth. And you know it's not being done today, but when Jesus comes, it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
And we also know at the end of the thousand years that there will be another rebellion. But at that time, that all the evil of the world will be cast away forever in the lake of fire. And we who are God's people will enjoy his presence for all of eternity. And we know that. And we've been entrusted with that great mystery of God. Do you know that to us it has been entrusted the great knowledge of the mysteries of God? Do you realize what you know that most of the people in your life don't know? And do you realize what a, a tremendous accountability that it becomes and responsibility to share what God has shared with you and me to those who don't have those answers? That's what he's saying. The instruction is, you know, when we look at this, turn back to Matthew 13, a parallel account of the same particular scene that we have taken place. And there's a little bit more in-depth for us as far as this particular point is concerned. But in Matthew 13, look at verse uh, 11. And we pick up the same place that Luke has a little different bent on it as far as Matthew's, uh, Matthew's recording. He says, And he answered them and said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been granted. But a contrast. But to the rest of the world who have not trusted in Christ as their Savior, the mysteries of God has not been granted to them. And here's why. And he goes on to say, For whoever has to him shall more be given. And he shall have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. Notice this. He says, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear." What he's saying to them is simply this. Have you ever had people in your life whom you have shared the mysteries of the kingdom of God? Here's where we've come from. Here's why we're here. Here's where we are going. This is what God's plan is for your life. The whole purpose that I can say to a person who's suffering with cancer or whatever other ailment, say, look, you know, the greatest thing that God has ever done in your life is to allow you to go through this suffering because it has, it has, it's a wake-up call that has totally shaken up all your priorities in life. There is nothing more important now in life. It's not more important to make more money. It's not more important to get that job promotion. It's not more important to buy that house. It's not more important to get that education, get your master's, to get your PhD. Nothing's more important now than knowing what's going to happen to you when you die. And even if God chooses to heal you of this ailment in your life, it is appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. You're still going to die. It may be a reprieve, but you're still on your way out. There is nothing more important than to know how to be right with God. That is the greatest need of the human heart is to find forgiveness from our Creator for our sin that caused Him to send His Son to die on the cross in your place and in mine. That is the greatest need that we have. And what he's saying is this. He's saying that, you know what, there are people who will hear that continually and they will not respond to it. And what he's saying is, how many times have you had a person in your family, your life, a co-worker, friend, neighbor, whatever, that you've shared the gospel with, and they are not interested anymore? They say things like, well, I'm glad I'm happy for you, good for you, I'm not interested. 
And the more that you present the simplicity of the gospel, the less likely they are to understand a thing that you're saying. Why? Because to one who has, more will be given to him. I receive the knowledge that I have. I I act upon it, Lord. I understand I'm a sinner. You want me to repent. I'll repent from sin. I understand your love for me, that you sent Christ to die for me. I will trust in his death and in his resurrection. I receive him as my Savior. And to those who have that message and receive that message in an appropriate manner, welcoming him into your life and into your heart, God says, to you I will now give you more of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to those who say, I am not interested, even what you had, the gospel presented to you, I will take it away from you and you will have nothing. How many times have you said in frustration, how many times can I share the gospel with this man, this woman, this child, and have this person just look at me with this blank, deer-like, look-in-headlights look? And you go, I don't understand. Well, here's exactly why that happens. Because the more that a person rejects the grace of God, the less likely it is that they'll ever understand to receive the gospel. And that is a frightening reality. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's looking at that crowd saying, listen, you heard, you saw. You're held accountable, and the more you close your heart to me, the more likely it is that you'll never respond to this invitation. Wow. And now, he gives us insights from the parable that reflect exactly what it is that I've just shared. If you go back to Luke chapter 8, notice this, verse 11 through 15. Now, the parable is this. I love this. The seed is the word of God. The one who went out from town went out to the fields and sowed the seed through the seed of the word of God. What he's saying is that person who was proclaiming and preaching and teaching the word of God is throwing it out. You become a sower. I become a sower in a more public manner this time, but in other manners privately as you do. You go out from your homes, you go to work, you go out from your home, you go to school, you go out from your home, you go to you know Thanksgiving dinner at the relatives or somewhere else or Christmas as it's coming out. You go out into the world and you sow seed, not only with your words but also with your deeds. And as we look at that, we sow these seeds and the seeds as the word of God. We share the truth of the Word of God. Because why? Because no one can come into right relationship with God without hearing the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. Peter writes that it's by the imperishable seed, the Word of God, that one is born again. So he says the parable is this. The sower sows seed, and the seed is the Word of God. Jesus continues to give spiritual insight to this physical story. He's saying, you know, hey, remember the different soils that I shared with you? We now learn that the soils represent the human heart. Notice in verse 12 and 15. Those beside the road who have heard the devil comes and takes away word from their hearts. Verse 15. And it says, and the one who has a good heart receives the word, holds it fast. So he's saying that, you know what? The soils represent the human heart. Everybody in this place, everyone who hears these words, one of these soils represents your heart. It's an objective spiritual EKG. You've got to examine your heart to see which one is reflective of you. The first one, he says, it's by the roadside or the hard heart. 
Those are the hardened, beaten paths that are emblematic of, emblematic of people who, you know, they hear the word of God and they hear it regularly. But their own busyness, their comings and goings, the incessant traffic of their life, everything that's going on hardens them to God's truth and nothing that God has to say stirs them up. It's like we're all sinners, whatever, I'm busy. Oh, you know what, we need to repent? Yeah, whatever. Good for you, not for me. They hear it over and over again, and the more that they hear it, the more hardened they become. It's like those who are walking on that path, and it's just trampled down. They trample underfoot the very word of God. I'll go to church with you because it makes you happy, but you know what, I don't want to be here. I don't have any interest in it. And you know what, and everything that's said from the pulpit or anywhere else just bounces off your heart, man, because your heart is so hard to God just bounces off. And that's the illustration that he's giving. You know, life for so many people is nothing more than a sports page in a beer or a fishing pole or a movie magazine or going to the movies or eating at nice restaurants or going out and playing golf or going to get your nails done or your hair done or going shopping at the big sales, whenever they are. I mean, sometimes that's the extent of what life is all about to people. And as I mentioned before, some of those hard-hearted folks may even be a little more sophisticated, but at the end of the day, they still have a hard heart. And the question that you have, is there any hope for such a heart or such hard ground? And the answer is absolutely. Because that hard ground needs to be turned over. And you know how God turns over a hard heart? He allows affliction and persecution and disease and loss and all those things that come into your life so it just blows up the soil of your hard heart. It shakes up your world. It causes you to have a wake-up call. It changes all your priorities because you begin to realize all these things that I thought were important aren't important to me at all anymore. And it just shakes you to the very core to where hopefully you bow your knee before God. You know, I, I want to say, you know, I hear people say, we well, you know, if God's a God of love, and I, and I hear this and it breaks my heart, if God's a God of love, why did he allow me to have cancer? Why did he allow me to have, you know, heart disease? Why did he allow me to do this, that, or the other thing? Or why did this happen in my family? If God is a God of love, let me tell you something. There's no ifs about it. Our God is a God of love. And, and, and such love, and he has such love that he would break up such plaque in our hearts rather than allow us to go to hell with no divine intervention. What would you think of a God who is that kind of God of love, who would allow you to continue to live in your sins, only to die and to be separated from God for all of eternity in hell? Don't you think a God of, of love would try to do everything that he can to intervene and intercept us on the way there? Praise God for illnesses. Praise God for financial reversals. Praise God for some loss that shakes you to the very core of who you are and that it strips away everything that keeps you from seeing God for who he is, that you can repent of sin and trust in Christ as your Savior. Praise God for that kind of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting love. For God so loved this world that even when you and I were sinners in rebellion against him, he sent Jesus to die for our sins. That is the greatest love of all, the love that will risk blowing up the comfort level of a person who is on their way to hell. Praise God for that. The rocky soil is a shallow heart. Notice he says, you know what? And then there's the, the rocky soil. Those who are by the road have hard hearts. The devil comes, takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe. Notice it's belief, 
and not works by which we're saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. They're the ones that have, you know, like an inch deep. They're the ones that, that, you know, I would call, but it's not a biblical term and it's not theologically accurate, but I would call those people like half-Christians. They're, they're the ones who profess faith. Oh, I went down at the altar call. Oh, I received Jesus. I checked it off on the card. You know what? But the problem is, as soon as there's anything that comes up in life, as he says here, the temptation, uh, the other accounts say that it's the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. When persecution comes along, when those things happen, uh, they may profess having, quote, received Christ, intellectually believed it for a while, but in time of temptation, their true way of life becomes known to everybody. That gal who came and said, you know what, I can't live with my boyfriend anymore. I know that we're sinning before God. You know, she's still living with him today, two or three years later. And, and, and my heart just is troubled for her spiritual condition because a person who professes to know Christ but continues to live in sin with no conviction whatsoever is a person who has been deceived by the, by the very devil from hell. And it's until we act upon those things that we know to be true in Scripture and we turn and repent from sin, don't you ever buy into the lie that you're right with God because you walked down an aisle or you signed a card or you prayed some prayer. Hey, there better be evidence. There better be fruit. There better be conviction of sin. There better be a hungering heart that says, God, I live to please you and to glorify you. And if my life's not doing it today, I need to turn from sin and turn to you and ask for your forgiveness and do what's right before God. Don't you sit out here today and be deceived into believing that you're right with God if you're living a manner that's, that's not worthy of your calling. And if you are living a life that's contradictory to the life that a Christian should live because the word of God very clearly your heart is a shallow heart it has about an inch of depth but it is not eternally saved you are not born again according to the word of God you're not born again according to the authority of Jesus you are kidding yourself and you better examine your heart and you better repent and turn to Christ see that's their true way of life I've seen this way too many times in the past 25 years. And Mark says that, you know, when when affliction and persecution arrive, the mere professors of eternal life will wither away and remain terribly lost. Jesus goes on to identify a third type of soil uh, or heart condition, and that's one that I call the resistant heart. And the seed, you know, when the seed, when he says, are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of life, they're the ones that resist, you know, God really doing a work in their life. The worries of the world, the riches of this world, you know, all of that goes along with it. It's a divided heart. It's one that says, yeah, I want to have a piece of the kingdom of God, but I want to continue to live like I want in this world. Jesus says, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to pick up your cross daily. You've got to turn from that, and you've got to live a life that's pleasing to God. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Or do you just love Him when it's convenient? You come on a Sunday, you know, when it's convenient, but then you go out and you live any way that you want to live. You pursue all the dreams that you have, all the goals that you have, even if God's saying to you, no, don't go that direction. You say, I don't care, because you are relegated to my Sunday mornings or some other time, but the rest of my time's my time, and don't be cutting in on it. But you know what? That's not a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. He says, you turn from everything. You walk from everything, everybody, and anything else that holds you back, and you follow Jesus. See, that's the problem in our world today. There's so many people, and I see them regularly. They come, they stop in. Then they go out to their vacation home in the desert or up in the mountains. Then they go golfing on the weekends. Then they go do this or that. Hey, I haven't seen you at church for four months, five months, six months. Oh, we've been busy. You know, I got club soccer, got this football, got this baseball, got this other thing going on. You know what? And I'm troubled as I read this, and I hope that you're troubled too. 
Because the reality of whether a person is genuinely born again is that there's fruit or evidence in their life that they have turned from sin and they've turned from selfishness. They've turned from anything and everything that holds them back from walking with the Lord and they follow Him. We've got this casual, unbiblical, heretical view of Christianity in our culture. That is, we can have God, we can trust Jesus, and we can do anything we want to do whenever we want to do it. And you know what? And that's how God wants us to live with no sacrifice on our part whatsoever. And that's just garbage. And Jesus is pointed out to the multitudes that day in that crowd saying, you know what, you better examine your heart because you're one of these four soil types. You're one of these four hearts. Which heart are you? And the heart that he goes on to say, finally, there's the good soil. And the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, an open heart, who came to listen, Lord, what is it you want me to know? What are you trying to teach me? What do I need to know today even about my own life? He said, and they've noticed and they hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. You know, that's why Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, you know what? I have fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. His salvation wasn't based on his efforts, but his lifestyle validated his salvation based on faith and trust and belief in Jesus Christ. He finished the race, folks. And the reason he finished the race is because he was a genuine entrant. He had a genuine entry form paid by Jesus at the cross. They got him into that race. You and I who persevere, read Revelation. It talks over and over again about those who persevere, those who endure till the end, those who withhold and uphold the standard of faith, those who are willing to go to their graves confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Him crucified, those who hang on to the very end. There's no doubt whatsoever about our colors. But the question that we have is what about all those who make professions but then fall away? I think we have a very clear answer from Scripture that Jesus said, unless you bear fruit, you are never a child of God to begin with. People don't like to hear that. And sometimes, you know, we, we, we tell people things that, you know, we shouldn't be saying. Oh, don't worry, you know, because you're a child of God based on faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Don't let the devil ever tell you that you're not a child of God. Sometimes I wonder if it's the Holy Spirit of God convicting us that we're not a child of God. I never want to encourage anyone to believe that they're a child of God. If they've got any doubts whatsoever in their heart because of the way they live their life, then I would say confess your sin, agree with God what you're doing is wrong, repent and turn from it. And I'll tell you this, when I'm walking with with the Lord and I'm doing what's right before God, there's absolutely no question in my heart whatsoever whether I'm born again or a child of God. None. But the people who need reassurance, the people who need convincing, the people who need to be told over and over again that they're believers are the ones that continue are convicted about their sin and continue to live in it. We don't want anybody to be confused. We got peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can live in that peace. We can live with that assurance. We can live with that confidence. And the witness is this, that God has given us His Son. And His life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son does not have life. The, I, the reason I've written these things is so that you may know you have eternal life. My question is, do you know that you have eternal life? 
He goes on in the parables and he says very simple, you know, as we look at this in closing, the importance of how we hear the word of God is very simple. He uses two parables that parallel what he just taught and said, look, Nothing is hidden that shall not become evident. No one after lighting a light in verse 16 covers it or puts something over it or puts it under a bed. Look, you know what? If Christ lives within you, then guess what? Let that light shine among men. Let that light shine. This little light of mine... I'm going to let it shine. Everybody, this little light of mine. You know, what, 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 I mean, you know, there's, there's solid theology there. Let it shine. You don't go hide under the bed. You know Jesus. You've trusted him as your Savior. It's been granted to you the knowledge of the mysteries of God. Let your light shine before men. So what? So that they give your Father in heaven all the glory for your obedience and telling them, I know why I'm here. I know what, where we're going. I know what, what God's plan is. I know where we've come from. I know all those answers, and I'll be glad to share them with you if you'd like like to know and if you've ever struggled with those questions yourself let it shine and that's why he says hey let it shine then he goes on and say hey his mother and his brothers were at the back of the line they were at the back of the crowd and they're saying your mother and your brothers are back there hey let them come up front and he said hey you know what everybody who hears the word of god and does it are my mother and my brothers what is he saying hear it do it when I was coaching baseball, we had this lady who was a coach that this was, she was, she was a crazy lady. And she was fanatical, man. She just loved it. And here's what she, she would always yell this. See the ball, hit the ball. See the ball, hit the ball. You know, that was solid coaching. You can't hit it, you can't see it. See the ball, hit the ball. You're golfing? See the ball, hit the ball. It's always amazing to me. You can miss something sitting still. I, I can understand somebody throwing a ball at you trying to make you not hit it. You know, it's dropping. It's going over here. It's going up here. It's coming fast, coming slow. You know, see the ball, hit the ball. you still got to be able to see to hit it. If you play tennis, see the ball, hit the ball. Hear the word, do it. Hear it, do it. If you heard today that you are a sinner separated from God and you're not sure of your relationship with God, he says, you know what, do this, repent. Turn from sin, turn to God. Trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, and receive him today as your Lord and Savior. Hear the word and do it. As you hear it, as you do it, more will be revealed to you. You hear it, you reject it, you will not even be able to understand it the longer you turn your back on the gift that God has to offer. Has God impressed on you that your heart is hard, shallow, or resistant? Then repent and respond by God's grace through faith to the finished work of Christ. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Ask God to plant eternal life in your soul today and to produce the fruit of the Spirit abundantly in your life. Has God's Word impressed on you that you must forgive someone? Then do it. Has God's word impressed on you that you must confess a wrongdoing? Then do that. Has God's word impressed on you that you must apologize? Then say, I'm sorry. I was wrong. No buts, no nothing. I was, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Has God's word impressed on you that you must speak the truth regardless of the consequences? Then you must do that. Has God's word impressed on you that you must discontinue a certain practice in your life? That if you are really a child of God and there is an area of your life that you know is not... The, the question again, do you believe that God is pleased with the way you're living your life? If you are really a child of God, His Spirit is convicting your heart even as I speak. And the Bible says, stop it. Turn from it. 
Trust Him. Give it up. Because I'm telling you right now that God has a better plan and a better program for you and more to offer than the lies of the pit of hell that says, you know what, you don't have to give this up. You can have it all. No, you can't. Our God is a jealous God. He wants your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul, and all the energy that he's given you to serve him. Has God's word impressed on you that you must give a gift, financially or otherwise? Then do it. I don't know about you, but I, you know, it's like, okay, do this. I, well, wait a minute. Let me, let's rethink this, Lord. Okay, can, can, we, can we do it this way? How about if we do it in installments? It's like, do you want to be obedient in installments or obedient at one time? And I'm not saying installments aren't right. I'm just saying if God's saying do this now and you say, but let me spread it out over this period of time, then you know what? Are you really being obedient? I mean, this this becomes so personal. Has God impressed on you that you must bear witness to one of your family members that that you're to share the mysteries of the knowledge of God? Then what are you waiting for? To share that you're a Christian with your teammate or classmate or, or, or somebody you work with. Why are you waiting? I had a guy come to me this morning and said, I've been trying to invite this guy to come to church for a long time. And, and I finally got, got around to getting over to asking to him and I found out he died on Wednesday. And I just go, man, you know what? We need to have a sense of urgency, folks, that it's appointed for man to die once and you and I don't know that appointed day so we need to live every day as if that day could be today and we've been entrusted with the secrets of the kingdom of God. Don't be selfish and not share that. What a tragedy that is. Don't become discouraged in closing. As you sow the seeds of God's word, the gospel, you know, hard and rocky soil can be shattered. The thorns that choke can be uprooted. The appeal of the gospel is an appeal that we are called upon to make to all sorts of and conditions of the human heart. We don't know whether that person will be receptive. But we know that, you know what, in our own, in our own lives, that we had hard soil that we had maybe an inch of interest, that we were choked out by the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. But you know what? As God's word continued to be sown in our hearts, it has brought forth an abundance of harvest. Look around today. You see the harvest that is brought about by the ever-life-giving, eternal seed the Word of God. Let us be committed to reach our world with the Word. Father, thank you for this time to be together. We thank you for the, uh, just the clarity of this message. God, help us to examine our own hearts to make sure that our hearts aren't hard or, or shallow or, or choked out by the other interests of life, but that we love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God, I pray for those who need to know you that today they would not reject the clarity of your message the clarity to repent or to turn from sin because no one's perfect. We all have sinned and fall short of your glory. The intent of your message that we would recognize our need for forgiveness, our greatest need is to be forgiven by you. That we would trust in your love for us that you sent Christ to die on the cross, that he died and he rose again according to scripture. He's alive today and he offers forgiveness to all who come to him for eternal life. God, I pray for all of us who have been born again by the will of God and not by our own efforts or works which cannot accomplish anything, but by belief and trust in your word, but believing upon him 
that we would not perish, that our lives would be lived in a manner that the light would shine so brightly in the world that you have us that many will come to ask us to share with them the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. We thank you for your love. We thank you for this understanding. And we thank you also for the fact you trust us to be responsible to share with the world that is lost and hurting and in need of your presence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand in it.